Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This is the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. This is your absolutely no bullshit business radio show. So if you're listening for the first time, you know, we don't talk about why some share went down five cents or why the CEO of some big company wears his socks inside out. We don't give a rat's ass about that stuff. What we do, we give you advice on how you can become a successful entrepreneur. So that's what we're all about. Now, there's a big birthday coming up this year. Uh, The first generation Xs will turn 50 years old. Isn't that scary? Commonly cited as born between 1965 and 1980, these independent-minded latchkey kids are now old enough to get their AARP cards. (laughs) But that's not all. They're poised for great leadership. The average age of an S&P 500 CEO is 50, and they're already leading the majority of growing companies. 68% of Inc.'s 500 CEOs are Generation Xs. And yet, you know, we don't tend to think about them at work, do we? Generation X might be the smallest proportion of the workforce, but they're your company's rising stars, and for many companies, they're current leaders. So with the rise of millennials who are predicted, predicted to be more than 40% of the workforce in another five or six years, we're obsessed with pleasing the masses and we're concerned about the aging boomer workforce, but we seem to forget about our middle independent children and the Generation Xs matter much, much more than you might think. Also this week, it was reported that Google's working on giant TV screens They're developing technology to allow users to integrate multiple screens to create giant television-like screens of variable shapes and sizes. Former Massachusetts Institute of Technology Professor Mary Lou Jepson's leading the project, which is being developed in secret and has not been disclosed to the public. You You might remember that Jepson previously led the project to create cheap laptops that could be given to the developing world. Well, that kind of fizzled a bit, didn't it? But the ability to combine small screens to create larger ones would really disrupt a market where prices increase dramatically with size. You know, a 32-inch screen can retail for almost nothing. Yet the largest screen, the 110-inch, can be 100 grand. But watch this space. We'll provide you with more information as we get it. Some interesting new facts came out about social media this week. Is anyone surprised that the average amount of time a person uses Facebook per month is now 15 hours and 33 minutes? Actually, that's a lot better than I thought. Okay, so there's seven more unusual facts about how pervasive social media is. 21% of people use social media in the bathroom. So you're sitting on the bathroom on your social media. (laughs) God. 31% of people use social media at a restaurant table. I think that's just bloody plain rude. If you went out on a hot date and the girl you were with took out her um, smartphone and sat there sending Facebook messages, you'd give her the bill, wouldn't you? 81% of small business owners use social media to buy and sell their services. The highest percentage of social media users, and this surprised me, is the Netherlands. Instagram's used by 200 million people every month. Now, of the 1 billion Twitter accounts, 44% of them have never, ever, ever been used. So, you know, they talk about having 1.4 billion people on on Twitter, well, almost half of them have never been used. And if you include a photo on your LinkedIn profile, 
it will increase your chances of being viewed by 1100%. All right. We've got a new segment today called How You Can Help the Entrepreneur, where we talk with somebody who's developed something pretty cool, and then we find out all about their project and determine how we can help them. Perhaps they, you know, they might want investment, they might be looking for joint venture partners, they may be looking for a new red-hot employee. Today's guest is John Schultz from a company called XPED. Now, this is a chat that I had with him just the other day. We've spoken quite a lot on the show recently about the Internet of Things and uh, mainly about how easy it is to hack into somebody's um, uh, system through their fridge or their toaster, which sounds ridiculous, but it (laughs) happens to be true. Now, with 25 billion appliances and all sorts of other items, which estimated by Cisco to be on the Internet of Things by 2015. The big question is, what's the most convenient and easiest way to operate them seamlessly across all the different devices we all have? I mean, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles with a a television system that's ridiculous. I need two remotes. There's 53 buttons, and you've got the set. Every time you add a new device or a new box, it gets more and more complex, so that you have to be either five years old or a computer nerd to be able to work your television set. So how hard is it going to be with the Internet of Things? Well, there's a company called XPED, which is an X. PED, and they've developed an extremely simple single device, it's a browser app, that enables you to connect and control any Internet of Things device using near-field communication. So the device browser has been developed by John Schultz and Chris Wood and their team, and uh, Chris has been developing world-leading GPS dead reckoning systems and been heavily involved in software infrastructure development. And uh, the CEO, John Schultz, who we have on the line today, built his first startup in eight, eight, eighteen, nineteen eighty-nine, and it's still going very strong. He's been managing ever, companies ever since and has been involved in designing hundreds of products for virtually every product product category, including defence, consumer, industrial, transport, automotive. This guy's smart. Now, together, these guys have co-invented 10 patents that back this very compelling platform for the Internet of Things. And I'm really interested in anything that makes this whole bloody thing simple. Hi, John. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Hi, Bob. How are you? Great to talk to you, and thanks for um, having me on. It's a pleasure. It's been, so, an ex- it's been an exciting ride, that's for sure. We've loved it. I'm sure it has. Now, I get the impression that you just like building stuff. Doesn't matter what it is, just as long as you can build it. <laughs> uh, well, you're actually right there, Bill. Um, Bob, I've been. I was brought up on a farm, and I really learnt from a young age how to tinker and build stuff. From my dad, he was always fixing and making things. And you know, built first crystal setters as a kid, and I'm a, I'm a dad now, so I bet my parents were sweating it when I was up on the roof scouring, yeah. uh, trying to put a 50 foot antenna up there to listen to radio for the first time. Yeah, could imagine. Uh, so you know, these things. And I built a go kart when I was 10, and used to fix things in high school. I'd charge five bucks for fixing a TV or a radio or a record player back then, and made a bit of money. It was pretty good. You don't um, want to come over here and fix some of the. Stuff I've got. The more, the more equipment we get, and the more gadgets yeah. we get, the more bloody yeah. confusing it all becomes. So that's right. Gave that up. Now the Internet of Things. It's got to be the most hyped concept since the millennial, the millennium bug, and everybody Absolutely. is trying to find a simple operating system. So what makes your system different? Yes, well, that's a good question, and that's an answer we have to give over and over. But before I do that, I just need to provide a very simple understanding of how systems work today to be able to tell us how ours is different. Now, you've said you've got a remote control there for your TV. You need to have an app for a device on your phone if you're going to control it. So basically, with today's technology, the, the remote control or the controller has to know about the device it's controlling. That's how the two of them communicate to each other. That's pretty obvious, and we all experience that. Um, And consortiums these days around the world are frantically trying to define how these devices of the future are going to work, whether it's your TV, a door lock, or an air conditioner, 
coffee machines, all these sorts of things. They're trying to devise, devise, you know, devise systems to interact with these things. Right. And they do that by defining a device profile. Profile is just a description on how a device works. It's as simple as that. Okay. But the whole process is very long and painful. We, sit, we sat in a consortium once where the guys were talking about how to design a door lock profile. It went for two hours. They didn't get a result. It wasn't the first meeting, it wasn't the last. It was just a simple door lock profile, for goodness sake. It's a difficult process, and it's restrictive. Once you have a fixed profile for a device, people who want to adopt that device, they need to develop their system around it. Yep. So what's revolutionary about ours is we abolish the whole concept of fixed profiles. Okay. Now, the way we do that, what that means is that the controller, whether it's your phone or whatever, needs no prior knowledge about the device it's going to control. Sort of sounds impossible. But the way it works is that you tap your phone uh, to a device and it describes its, everything it needs to know about itself to the controller. The controller learns that and just like magic, it all operates. You can now control that device. So... Is this um, being made possible by NFC, near field communication? Is that is that what's made? Yeah, that's possible? a that's a core that's a core element in it for us. Well, um, and and you mentioned security there a minute ago. Yeah, uh, one of your, one of your other shows. The beauty of using NFC, or one of the advantages of using NFC, is that the security keys never go over the air. Right. As you tap your controller to that device. All the security keys needed to set up a secure wireless network between the controller and the device happen at that point. So people can't sniff them, they can't access them because they're not over the air. It's okay. a private link. All right, well, as I understand it, and I may well be wrong, but I don't, I'm not usually wrong, John, um, <laughs> is um, Apple's NFC is completely restricted to iPay, isn't it? Apple's NFC is definitely a payment system at this stage, but the exciting thing about NFC on Apple is like other products that they've released uh, previously, they generally make them open in subsequent models or years to come. So we're expecting that the NFC on the Apple system will be open to developers in, in some time in the future and hopefully soon. And if it's not? Well, if it's not, then consumers will have to migrate further to the Android platform, I assume, because uh, mm. there's a lot of, compelling in a lot of compelling solutions out there that want to adopt NS NFC and embrace it for their, for their companies. Yeah. So what sort of things can you monitor on these devices, simply? Pretty much anything you like. As a developer, you don't have restrictions. So uh, if you want to monitor whether a device is simply on and off remotely or if it's got a fault or an overload condition or whether you just want to look at sensor data, you can do that. So the developer has that choice. Uh, but, what, but what most people are finding really great about this is the, the energy monitoring. That's natively built into our platform. Right. So developers can offer to their consumers the ability to understand what their energy usage is across all of their products. So what if I have more than one phone? I've got, I've got two iPhones, like me, I've got two iPhones, I've got a pad, I've got a watch, yeah. I've got all this stuff. That's right. What happens? That's right. Yeah, so our system really um, solves that problem really well. We have a multi-controller system, so it doesn't matter if you have one phone or ten phones or controllers. If you turn a, a light switch on or off on one controller, the whole system knows about that and all the other controllers automatically update to show the status. So um, if your kid turns your, his light on, then you, you will see what he's doing and you can turn it off and say, I want you to turn your lights off tonight, it's time for bed, okay. uh, this sort of thing. So the multi-controller reflects the status of, of the system across all of the controllers. So what about products that don't have your solution? What we have is um, gateway technology. So, for example, uh, if you want to control your AV equipment that you have right now or yep. roller shutters that use infrared technology, we have a gateway that's an infrared blaster and that will communicate to those devices um, from our controllers or our app on the phone. Okay. How do you plan to get this thing to market, mate? 
Well, what we're doing at the moment is we are building a set of development boards and they're going to be targeted at the Arduino community. Right. Uh, Arduino is like the Lego of electronics. So, yes. you know, people buy these boards and they plug them together and they make fancy little projects and it's really, really good stuff. It's easy to use. But one of the really difficult things they have uh, to face is how do I put a user interface on that? So we've built a little Arduino shield. You plug it on. You write a few lines of code and you tap your phone and voila, you've got a user interface for your for your project. It's really really simple. And and what and the big the big compelling uh, thing for them and any developer in this is that you don't actually need to write an app anymore. The device browser app that we've written is the interface, and all developers need to do is write a few lines of code. And the device browser app understands that and renders a user interface, sets up the, the, the network, and, and everything is controlled just with a few lines of code. So it saves the developers a huge amount of time and money in getting to market. Isn't, isn't that a slow way to market? I mean, isn't, isn't one of the keys to market these days is to get out there hard and fast um, because absolutely. somebody will either absolutely. pitch it or copy it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, our, our big plan, our main aim is to get into the major adopters, the right. people who have deep pockets, uh, wide global reach. Now, of course, you talk to these guys and there's two questions they've got. Is, does the technology work and who cares? So by introducing our technology to this developer community, we have proved that the technology works. Right. It's easy to use. And there is a market for this technology. Yeah. And that satisfies a lot of concerns that adopters have about new technology that comes through. And I guess the next, the, the next hardest part is getting past all the gatekeepers at the, <laughs> at the big guys that, that you really want to get well, behind that, you. That's exactly right. And it's a matter of getting in front of the right people and having them support us. And that's why we're looking for partners at this stage. You can yeah. help us do that and move forward. Yeah. Well, you know, what you really need to do is hire a very brilliant marketer like myself. So, <laughs> Absolutely, what, Bob. What do you... What, um, what do you need now? Or what are you looking for as you move forward? I mean, how can we help you get to where you want to go? Yeah, well, what, we're, we're quite specific about what we want now. We're looking for partners who can assist us and open the doors. We're looking for Series A funding. We're very proud that we've been able to self-fund this and all the patents that we have behind us at, to this point in time. What sort of uh, money are you looking for? Uh, we're looking for an initial round of a, a $1 million, One million, but, okay. uh, yep, that will be followed up with a further round as well. Sure. So, so yeah, so, so, so the looking... Kickstarter program is is really the beginning of it all. Right, uh, okay. Get some seed product out there, and then we need um, partners and, and funding. Partners and a million dollars. So if you're out there listening to this interview and you think that, um, you know, the Internet of Things is the biggest change in technology um, that we've experienced in the last 20 years and as I said before there's going to be 25 billion appliances so this has to be a sensational investment for somebody Um, so it's a million bucks Um, or if you um, have the means to help get this out to market please either um, go to xped.com that's xped.com or Send an email direct to me, bob at bobpritchard.com, and I will send it on to John. Thanks very much, John. Great speaking with you. And, Thanks, uh, Bob. It was great. I look forward to speaking with you again. Appreciate the time. Okay. Pleasure. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. Now, if you can do anything to help John, please contact me. We're here to assist all entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you've got a question about any aspect of your business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer it on air or email you directly. Now, make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which is set out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. It's due out this week, so sign up now. In a moment, I'll be back with today's guest. Peter Friedman, a social media visionary and veteran with 18 years' experience in social content marketing space at Live World, and then another 12 years at Apple. He raised over $100 million in private rounds and an IPO, grew the company to hundreds of employees, and we'll tell you the rest of the story after this short break. 
Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we talk to very successful people. People who, in some ways, are quite extraordinary, that are really making a difference to the way the rest of us do business. I'm always amazed at just how many amazingly talented people there are in this world. I love to chat to them because they've so much that they can teach us. Now, my aim in these interviews is not to give their business a big plug, but to try and find out what are the characteristics that they have that, they, that makes them great and how can each of us learn from their success stories. Today's guest is Peter Friedman, a social media visionary and a veteran with 18 years experience in the social content marketing space at Live World and another 12 years at Apple. You'd wonder why you'd ever leave those companies, wouldn't you? I mean, if you've been at Apple for a long time, you'd think that you'd have bunch of shares and you'd be doing very well but I'll ask him uh, he's provided multiple global brands with strategic social media guidance and delivered hundreds of social media programs across multiple countries and in multiple languages now these include Apple the Apple in, Apple industry worldwide social network Apple link mini Cooper's membership lounge HBO's original show character driven website community and Walmart's Facebook and Twitter programs just to name a few now Peter founded founded I'll do that again Peter founded Live World raised over a hundred million dollars in private rounds and an IPO grew the company to hundreds of employees and managed its downsizing survival and reinvention through multiple market crashes recessions and resurgencies now that that's difficult to do it's very hard to to rehabilitate a company once it gets into trouble for no fault of its own or because of fault of its own. Peter brings a unique combination of strategic thinking, vision and hands-on operational skill as well as a blend of marketing, social media and technology experience. His writings on social media can be found at the Huffington Post. My favourite post every day, can't start my day without going to Huffington Post and across the web. Peter's new book, the CMO Social Media Handbook, a step-by-step guide for leading marketing teams in the social media world, has just been released. Peter, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thanks for having me. So why would somebody who's been at Apple for 12 years with, you know, it seems to me that that's an engine of innovation and it would be really seriously exciting working at Apple. Um, so why, why did you leave? Well, it's interesting you ask that question because it was extremely difficult to do because it was an extraordinary experience working there. I'd say leaving Apple was harder than leaving my marriage, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was very, very difficult. Though being um, entrepreneurial by nature, coming from an entrepreneurial family and being kind of an entrepreneur inside Apple, and at that point being deeply immersed in you know, online community, which, you know, has been renamed social media. Sure. I really wanted to build something on my own. 
also Apple was kind of falling apart at that time, and I kept wanting to go, but they made, I felt guilty. We had to lay people off. We had to restructure all this type of thing. And then they blew up my division and came in and said, well, we're laying you off, too. I said, really? Do I get the big package? And they said, yes. And then they told me what they were going to do. I said, well, I just want to be sure I've got that big package. They said, you can't take it away. They said, yes. Okay, well, here's why what you're doing is all wrong. Right. <laughs> then they wanted me to stay and went back and forth. And um, But it was really falling apart. I didn't know that God was going to come back and resurrect the body. Right. And he did, like three months later. And I was like, Steve, why would you, you, you waited for me to leave? Um, <laughs> but mostly it was, you know, we wanted to take what we were doing, which was online services, and we really wanted to do it and build a company. And Apple wasn't in a situation where it was going to keep doing it. Kind of a big mistake on Apple's part, but nevertheless. So we took our core people, you know, several different people that worked with me, yeah. and a team of moderators from around the world, including in Australia, right. uh, that were kind of our behind-the-scenes cultural model of people that knew how to do social media with real value add. And we said, look, these people, um, they're going to disperse. We'll never get them back together. And even though I had a conservative plan on how to get started, we threw that out the window on a March 3rd, 1996, my co-founder, Jenna Woodall, and I, and said, let's just get started before these people disperse. And three weeks later, we launched the company with a service called Talk City, which is a precursor to Facebook. This is 1996. Right. And then we had to you know, form a company to trademark the name and that type of thing, and then we just kept going from there. Social media is, um, everybody talks about social media, but it seems to me that very few people do it well. What, what, are, if you, what are the two or three key ingredients to, for a corporation or even an individual, depending on what they do, um, to use social media really well, effectively, I, mean, I guess effectively is better, so that it does produce um, the exposure and sales results that you're looking for? Well, the first thing to do, which most people don't do, is write down your business goals that you want to accomplish with social media right. and set some uh, K- KPIs and look for ROI. A yeah. lot of people say, oh, you can't have it. Well, that's BS. Yeah, you can have it. It's evolving, but you can do it. So that's the very first thing you have to do. The second thing to do is understand this is a different media form. It's unlike any other media form we have. It's deeper, it's more powerful, but it's social. It's really about creating environments where your customers can talk to each other and form relationships, and then you join it. Most social media marketing today isn't truly social. It's traditional TV, print, or rather TV, digital PR, shoved through social channels at people, rather than creating conversations and relationships among them and then drawing yourself along with that. Yeah, it's monologue, not dialogue, isn't it? Right, 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 exactly. And the third thing is to understand with that what your customers are really getting out of it and address that. And there are three things. People get to share and express themselves, they get to make friends, and they get attention. And if you're not serving one of those three, and preferably all three, you, know, you may be doing some coupons to get some impulse thing, but you're not really leveraging the true strength of social media. How do you cut through the clutter? I mean, you, you know, you, it's like you go onto Facebook and you look at a post and you look back one minute later and it's either gone or it's 10,000 articles down. How do, you, how do you overcome that clutter situation with social media now? Well, one thing that's, you know, advancing quite a bit especially on Facebook and Twitter and the other uh, networks are following, is the ability to target and segment so you can focus what you're doing to different people. And you need to think of it as a very large network, but it's really a large sort of conglomeration of lots of small groups and and networks. Uh, But the most important thing, going back to the idea of dialogue and relationships, is don't spam your users with a bunch of product messages. Um, create, Create an environment. Think of it as a party. It's your online party. If you went to somebody's party and the host stood up and talked all night, throwing messages at you, you'd get bored. And it would be kind of like what you just said. I came in here and it's like he's throwing messages at me and the next guy's doing it and the next guy's doing it. But if you create an ambiance, you know, like uh, if you walk, instead of walking to an empty warehouse, there's country music and waiters and cowboy hats and beer and sawdust on the floor. And people get a sense of it. And you create posts that stimulate dialogue and relationships. People will get that and then they will carry your conversation forward so people will be seeing what you're doing 
uh, through the conversations they're having with someone else. That's the number one way to help a customer filter it is by creating a conversation with their friends. I bet with all those messages coming at you on Facebook, if one of your friends is talking, that rises right out of it, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, you, so you want to you know, encourage people and inspire them and involve them where they're talking to each other about you, not just you know, you're talking at them. Now you talk about uh, PR landmines, so, and we all run into PR landmines all the time. So how do you mitigate the risk of PR landmines and turn them to your advantage? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is in social media, the customers are in control and you're joining an environment where they're talking. It's not like a one-way, as you said, monologue right. environment. So you're going to have problems because everybody's talking about you. It's not that those problems weren't there before. It's just before you could avoid listening to them. Now you have to really pay attention to what your customers are saying. Yeah, sure. So the first thing is accept you're going to have them. You can't run away and you know, put your head in the sand because they'll just go on without you. The second thing is to understand it's a customer-driven medium. You're not in control, so you have to abandon traditional PR models, which are essentially you know, control-oriented, you know, get rid of it and control the message. Yeah. You have to embrace the message and diffuse it. And the number one thing you have to do is not wait till the problem happens to have a plan. You have to put in a social media crisis plan ahead of time train people, know your paths of escalation, talk to legal, have critical responses, you know, for sensitive issues ready to go, that type of thing, because you have to react fast. You have to react in hours, not another day or two. Right. And when I say react, I mean that's diffuse, that's respond, it isn't argue, it isn't try to make it go away. Um, the next thing you have to do is well ahead, build the right kind of involvement so you have loyal customers and relationships ahead of time. Then once you diffuse this, you're basically waiting to allow your brand defenders to emerge and defend you. Right. You can't, you can't do that when it happens. You don't make friends and relationships in the middle of a crisis. You have to have them ready ahead of time. And then last, and I think this is the most interesting part, which people aren't doing yet, but this is what's going to happen. The whole reason you're there in the first place, the whole reason you're doing any marketing is to get your customers' attention. Yes. Now, you may not have wanted to get their attention through a problem or a complaint or a Greenpeace attack, but you got it. Now, let's see what you can do with it. And if you're very clever about it and you're transparent and you have brand defenders, you can usually say, okay, what are we talking about here? Oh, I didn't know that. Well, here's what we're thinking. Here's what some of our customers want. And basically turn that attention to your advantage. We call that you know, flipping uh, the crisis to your advantage. Right. And, and in many cases, like for example, um, a big pharma company um, put out an ad uh, for a um, pain reliever. Right. And it was like moms with kids on their hips. And however the ad came across, the moms didn't like it. They thought it was kind of demeaning. Uh, it wasn't really understanding it. So uh, this isn't what that pharma company did, but what they could have done is said, oh, well, okay, we weren't listening enough. Now we're listening. Why don't you tell us where you have back pain, where you're doing stuff with kids gives you aches and pains, and what you want to do about it? And built an entire conversation, mom's driven, around that subject. And then everybody would have said, okay, I didn't get that ad right, but they really care. They're really listening. They understand me. That's the guy I want to buy my pain reliever from. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So the proper way to respond to negative social commentary without pissing more people off is to be engaged, um, show that you're listening, pose a, um, a solution to the problem or ask the customers or ask your audience to propose the solutions to the problem. Is that sort of it in a nutshell? Yes, very much so. You, you, it's, it's not about um, uh, control or, or, or driving the message. It's about embracing and listening and diffusing. And then you can turn it to your advantage. And the interesting thing is, in most social media crises, not all, but most, we, we deal with them a lot. We have one client, it's like one a day. Um, and the, uh, uh, the, the thing you get in trouble for is not the issue that's causing the crisis. It's how you handle it. We've seen clients and brands that are so busy trying to control the message, deleting the bad stuff and all that, that you know an outcry rises because they deleted stuff because they weren't listening. 
And that tends to be where you get in trouble more than the actual issue that started it. Does the NFL sound familiar here? <laughs> that would be one of them. <laughs> I can't believe they did that so badly. Um, how do you become sort of the Starbucks of the internet in regard to social and branded media content you know, and all the conversation and the moderation? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, the interesting thing about that, and, and Starbucks is, is a good friend uh, of a CEO of that's a friend of mine, and they're in a, they invested in our company. Um, as he built that company, uh, Howard Schultz, he said, yep. really, your home is your first place, your work's your second place, I want to create a third place. And they found in their out-of-the-store research that the thing that people liked most was the other people, even if they didn't talk to anybody. And what Starbucks has done over many years is they've created a people experience, an emotional people-based experience that rises above the products themselves. And that's the answer. What you want to do is think about your brand as an emotional people experience, not just your product or your service. And you can do that in social media. And people will expect that their on-page experience with you is what their in-store or with product or with service experience will be. And if they have a good experience with you in social media, talking to your people or your you know, partners who represent you, talking to other people, then they say, these people understand me and this is what it'll be like to do business with them. So the key to it is to be focused on the people experience you create with your brand more than the actual product or service. So coffee is simply the glue that holds these people together because um, if people like sitting around with other people and uh, even if they didn't talk to them, the libraries would be full, wouldn't they? This is true. And, and you know, at Starbucks, the fulcrum point is their baristas, which they refer to as partners, yeah. not employees. Right. And the whole purpose of that company is here's how we're going to make a good people experience for you through these people and coffee is the product. We've got technology and process flow to scale them, but it's the end result of that people-to-people -people experience that you can count on wherever you go. And we like to think that we enable our clients to do that because we have all these moderators and engagement specialists, and we support them with process flow and technology, but we're creating a quality people experience for each of our brand clients. Each one's different, but the idea of a quality people-to-people -people experience is what we're all about and this is how you become the Starbucks of the internet and people are more loyal to that they, they will be loyal to you if they understand you as people making good people experience more than any um, message or ad or even the products can do and because social media is such a deep emotional people-to-people -people experience they will experience your brand through most social media more than any other marketing form or even the product itself yeah, and it's such a warm lounge room environment, isn't it? it it's not like going to some sort of sterile um, retailer. It's 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 very comfy and cosy, and and it feels good. Well, if you do it right, yes. If you don't, no. We had one client. I'm not going to say which one it was. It was in the quick service restaurant industry, and we were moderating their pages for them. And some a very creative agency was doing their content. Mm -hmm. Edgy agency who's used to provoking people in 30-second commercials. Yep. And they started doing this on the page. And we went to the client and said, look, you're kind of a family restaurant with a, a big focus on kids, right? They said, yeah. And I said, well, your agency here is putting up posts like, what do you want to do with your meat today, which teenage yep. boys respond to, like, not how you intended. Yep. So if you want people to think your party is a rave, and when they go into your quick service restaurant, people could be jumping up and down on the tables doing drugs and harassing each other. You're set. Right. <laughs> but if that's not what you are, we got to change this. Does it take a special type of person to um, be a good social media communicator? Because one of the things I've said for years and years and years about this world is that people are in the in the main before before we had all the gadgets to fiddle with rather than talking to people people were still lousy communicators the average person is a dreadful communicator always has been probably always will be and i think possibly that it's worse now with with all the gadgets that we can play with um so what does it take to be a great social media communicator well, I have three thoughts on this. First, you make a very interesting point about communications, but I will say I think social media is bringing back literacy and will solve the world literacy problems because you have to express yourself 
through words, and early teenagers, as they develop socialization skills, this is their main media form, and they have to learn to use words and vocabulary. There's no vocabulary, but they have to do it. It's not going to um, do much for spelling, though, is it? <laughs> well, it'll be a new, a new vocabulary, <laughs> that way. Um, and then I think that, uh, you're right, not everybody can do it. There's a special skill involved. You know, we like to think that's you know what we cultivate because we have engagement specialists and hundreds of moderators on staff, and they're little talk show hosts. And it's like when every client's a casting call because they have different levels of skills. Some can just review content. Some can engage people. Like some are the bouncers at the party. Some are the DJs. And then right. you know expertise. And then we train them in the voice. And I think if you have to think of it as little talk show hosts, it's not unlike being a talk show radio host because you're basically, we're having a conversation and you're trying to stimulate with other people. And if you have call-in people, you're kind of a talk show host, just like our moderators would be. Right. And you also have to really be thinking about the brand and its voice and what you're doing. I mean, we shadow our clients. We really learn what they're all about so we can be them. And it, so, and you, again, you have to be thinking about dialogue, not just the broadcasting. But I will say, another way to look at this is when someone writes a history of business, since you talked about age-old uh, communications or not, they're going to say 5,000 years of history, sales and marketing was all about dialogue and relationships and Roman forms and medieval marketplaces and shares of general stores. Mm-hmm. So in the second half of the 20th century, it becomes monologue, not dialogue, as you so eloquently Absolutely. said. Yeah. And now this brings it back. So just as... Uh, thousands of years ago and hundreds of years ago, the best merchants were the ones who could tell stories. The best people of social media today are going to be the people who could tell stories but involve their customers in the storytelling itself. So it takes people with um, considerable empathy to be a good social media communicator. Yes, I really think so. Uh, empathy is a really good word because you're not broadcasting to everybody you're having one-to-one and small group conversations at scale, and that takes empathy. Right. So tell us about wargaming in reference to protecting yourself from unexpected blowback when you launch your social campaign. Well, uh, going back to our ideas about a, a social media crisis and just dealing with it, what you want to do is say, okay, here's what we're doing. How will people react to this and how will we respond? So you lay out the scenarios, and it helps inform you uh, on what could happen not just on what you're doing in social media, but really all your advertising and marketing should be screened by the social media people so we could say, okay, uh, I'm not going to tell you how to change it, but this is the problem we may have and how to deal with it. And then you're ready. And you can often avoid a lot of things that, that uh, before you didn't avoid and you never knew you had a problem because you weren't really listening to your customers. And now that you have to listen, you might as well anticipate issues and, and be prepared for them. How do you anticipate issues when you, know, when you put the campaign together in the first place? The reason you did it the way you did it is because, and I guess, you know, unexpected blowback is unexpected. So <clears throat> it's not something usually that you would anticipate. I mean, some of the things that come out of the woodwork are things that, you know, you couldn't possibly anticipate um, and all of a sudden it blows up because people misinterpret for one. Because I, 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 see, I'm one of those people who believes, and you're going to hate me for this, but I'm one of those people that believes that the average person out there is a moron. You know, there's, there's a lot of smart people out there, but there's a hell of a lot of really dumb ones too. And I think a lot of communication misses because they um, the people who are determining the communication... Um, overestimate the in- intelligence or the ability to interpret of the audience that they're hitting. Well, I, I'm not going to agree with you that everybody's a moron, but regardless, <laughs> not if you're in business and, and these are your customers, right. your job is to get more sales or whatever else you want to do with your customers, and they're your customers, so you need to communicate with them in a way that they'll understand it. Yep. And again, this is one of the beauties of social media. It forces us out of this monologue model where we can stand there and go, I've made a brilliant ad in a message, and if they're not understanding it, they're just not getting a point. Well, maybe they aren't, but they're not, now they're not going to buy your product. So yeah. it would be an awfully good thing to figure out how to help them get the point. And the way to do that is to understand how they understand things and either uh, do it in those terms or think about, what you're going to do to move them to where you want to go. And, and again, I think we've had about 50, 60 years now 
of people in uh, basically ivory towers doing brilliant creative that they understand that but maybe it's not really what their customers are all about and that could be because the customer isn't up to understanding it or more likely it's because the brand of the advertising agency didn't really understand the customer the way they thought they would so after is- all if they're talking about you what's in their minds and hearts and what they say to their friends is what they understand so what's more important, having a thorough understanding of the customer or the product, or are they equally important? Oh, I would always say the customer, because um, your product is ultimately going to uh, um, win or lose as a function of the customers, not the other way around. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be innovative and be leading people, but you need to pay attention to what your customers are thinking. You can yep. be a visionary, you can be ahead of them, but you're still going to have to move them to a position where they'll understand what you're going to do. And the best way to do that is to find the ones who do understand it and help them tell the other people. So I've got a, um, a social media crisis. I've got a problem that I didn't expect. So what are the questions you should ask yourself and get the answers to before going out and responding to that crisis? We, we want to, at a broad level... You want to identify what kind of a crisis it is and how big it is. Like in our in our business, um, we have a framework of six different kinds of crises and and four levels, like DEFCON one, two, three, or yeah, four. Sure. Most companies overreact or underreact because most things are a two or a three, not a one or a four. But so you have to think that through. So the first questions to ask is, you know, who is this um, that is, is is has the issue? What is the influence level they have? Is the conversation volume growing or declining? How can you address it? What's the potential for more public outrage? And how risky is the topic? Because if you're a pharmaceutical company, uh, for example, that's very regulated, you have to be very, very careful. But there's legal exposures, uh, not only of whatever's happening, but what you say and how you do it. So who who's having the problem? What the issue is? Um, what the potential impact can be? How's it going and what your risk is? You want to start with those things. And then you have to um, say, okay, how am I going to embrace and diffuse this, not control and try to make it go away? Right. So what are, the, what are some of the legal and privacy issues that are faced with social media? Okay, well, privacy is always like a, a, a big topic. So yep, I'm going to put this in one quick phrase. Privacy is gone. Get over it. Right. It's gone. And it's not coming back. And the people who understand this best are, you know, social network, Facebook, millennial generation. They recognize that everything, everybody knows everything about you. So you really can't do much about it. It's kind of curious they recognize it more because their parents have been giving everything about them through credit cards to big database companies for years. And right. today, uh, the credit cards you've been using for many years are already telling companies more about you than social media is. And social media is just kind of the next stage. So I think the first thing is to understand, um, you know, we're not going to be in a world where there's a lot of privacy and we're going to have to get used to the fact that people know almost everything about you and not judge people on that so much. Now they just next, know what you look like as well. Yeah, yeah. And yep. now, having said that, if you don't want people to know something, don't put it online, Period. Yeah. And also, I wouldn't say it on the phone or put it on a computer or anything, but you know, you can you can manage it some. You have to, you know, also you know raise your children with more of an awareness of what all this is like, so they understand that. Um, then, depending on what country you're in and where you're going, the rules vary. In the United States, legal issues are mostly wrapped around a trademark and copyright, uh, but this can vary. In the EU. Uh, it's also a defamation of character. Sure. So as a brand, you have to be careful about these things. But in the end, most of these issues, legal and privacy issues, they're less a function of law and more a function of business management and risk, what you want to do and how you're going to do it. You're not really liable for much in the U.S. of what happens online from users or even what you do. Yep. However, um, you can really mess up your customers or your business positioning. So what you need to do as a brand is engage with your legal department early, understand they're trying to protect you and the company. They want to um, manage, mitigate, um, and minimize risk. 
And they understand that they can't get rid of risk and that it's going to be there, but they want to make sure you're not shooting from the hip and not thinking it through, that it's managed. A legal group can really be a good partner, but you have to get them in early. If they don't understand social media, you have to educate them and have them help you figure out how to manage the risk. And that's the best thing to do. Okay, quick question. What's your favorite social media campaign of all time? Ah, well, um, let's see. I guess I have to divide that into my clients and not my clients, right? So... Um, I really like I really like everything Walmart does. That's one of my clients, and that's a really good example of a company who has a cultural footprint of their own. And if right. you look at their social media presence compared to other retailers, you'll see it's. I mean, they're trying to sell products and everything, but it's much more about the customers compared to what other people do. And that's why one of the reasons they're the number one uh, retailer, actually the number one brand in the U.S. on Facebook. And they have a you know deep engagement level. So I always like what they're doing. I'm very much like uh, Zoetis, a client of ours. It's the largest animal drug company, and they have a page we did with them called EQ Stable. It's all about horses. And this is a really good example of how rather than just throw your product at people, this page is all about horses and everybody's love of horses and the people at Zoetis and their individual love of horses. And you know every so often they talk about. And by the way, talk to your vet about this. But you can see that a community is building there. Now, moving outside of, um, well, and one we did years ago was the Dove campaign for Real Beauty, which we were very involved in. That's, you know, the poster child. Moving outside of our own space, I always like Oreo. Uh, Oreo just does a wonderful job of creating a shared experience. And they talk about the product, but they go, go buy Oreos. They talk about, if an Oreo could dream, what would it be, you know? And, yeah. and they've got a very famous uh, tweet in the Super Bowl. Yeah, that was um, brilliant. Right. And that, that they won the Super Bowl. They didn't even have a commercial. Because the yeah. lights went out. And they said something like, you can still, you can dunk, still in dunk in the dark. In the dark. That, 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 now, I, I have to give credit to whoever came up with that in real time. But the success of that wasn't because they were so creative in real time. So that gets credit. It's because they already had millions of followers who already were involved in them emotionally and culturally and with each other. So the yeah. stage was set over several years to really leverage that up. So in that's actual, a, that's a, in, a great in actual, example. In actual fact, with Oreos, they had 60 one-liners ready to go, 60 tweets ready to go, um, and they sat there and they thought of every possible contingency that could go wrong during the Super Bowl, and they had them all sitting there, and all they had to do was pick the right one when the occasion occurred. They planned it a month in advance. I think that I think that's brilliant, Peter. Where well, I, I don't know this, but I would guess that one wasn't the plan. But they were ready to be clever. Apparently, apparently it was apparently it was one on their list. Anyway, well, that, that's Peter, even more impressive. It, it is. It's very impressive, Peter. Thank you very very much. Um, social media is is. The critical element in people's business, not only now but in the future. And Peter is one of the worldwide experts in his new book, The CMO's Social Media Handbook, a step-by-step guide for leading marketing teams in the social media world. It's out now. I'm looking forward to getting my copy, Peter. And Pete, thanks very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to connect with Peter, go to at Peter Friedman on Twitter. I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network. Now, 90% of the work that I do apart from this radio program and with my speech presentations is to work with entrepreneurs and early stage companies to build their business. So if you've got a project that uh, could be of benefit to everybody that might be listening or your experiences might be of benefit to everybody listening, let me know and uh, we'll get you on the show. Now, Facebook already knows way too much about you. 
They know who your friends are and the kind of things that grab your attention. Soon, it could also know the state of your health. On the heels of fellow Silicon Valley technology companies Apple and Google, Facebook is plotting its first steps into the fertile field of healthcare. Now, the, the people have requested anonymity who are leaking this, so plans are still in development, but the company is exploring creating online support communities that would connect Facebook users suffering from specific ailments. Um, so they're also considering new preventative care applications that would help people, these people with these ailments to improve their lifestyles. In recent months, the social networking giant has been holding meetings with medical industry experts and entrepreneurs and is setting up a research and development unit to test their new health apps. Now, healthcare's historically been an area of interest to Facebook, but um, they've had so many other things to do, it's sort of taken a back seat. But recently, uh, Facebook executives have come to realise that healthcare might work as a tool to increase engagement with the site. And the unexpected success of Facebook's organ donor status initiative, which they introduced a couple of years ago, do you remember that? Blimey, it went through the roof. They had... um, you know, I'm a um, global ambassador for kidney health and getting people organ transplant donors, organ donors is, is really difficult. Well, when um, Facebook announced it, that 13,054 people registered to be organ donors online in the United States, and that's 21 times the number they normally get. So that is fantastic. Um Facebook product teams noticed that people with chronic ailments such as diabetes search the social networking sites for advice. In addition, the proliferation of patient networks such as patients like me demonstrate that people are increasingly comfortable sharing symptoms and treatment experiences online. So um, I think that any advertising built around the health initiatives would not be targeted, you know, like it is on television. Um, but And privacy... I guess that's the other spot, isn't it? Privacy is an area where Facebook has faced considerable criticism over the years, and that's probably going to be a challenge. But they, um, I, I'm sure they've got a few ideas to alleviate privacy concerns around health initiatives. Uh, it's considering rolling out its first health application quietly, a source said. Market research commissioned by Facebook found that many of its users were unaware that photo service Instagram is Facebook-owned, so they figured if they put it out under another name, it'll probably slip under the radar. And Facebook's recent softening of its policy regarding users to go by their real names, well, that might also bolster the company's health plans. People with uh, chronic conditions may prefer to use an alias when sharing their health experiences So it remains pretty much unclear whether Facebook will moderate or curate the content shared in the support communities or whether they'll bring in outside medical experts to provide context. But Zuckerberg and his team are crazy smart. So I'm sure they're going to work it out, but it does seem like one hell of a good idea. Now, don't forget, I want to hear from you. So visit my website at bobpritchard.com. Sign up for my newsletter, email me, tweet me, tell me what it is that you want me to talk about. You can also write and say, you suck, if you want to. I don't care. I've got a thick skin. Of course, if you love me to death, write to me and tell me that you love me to death because I've got a huge ego that needs feeding regularly. My October newsletter goes out to 16,000 people in about 60 countries every month and it's about to be sent out. Make sure you don't miss out. Go to my website today and get onto my mailing list. We have quite a lot of people every month sign up onto the mailing list, so that's good. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come at the same time every week. So I'm just about to go out to the airport and get on a plane to go to Sao Paulo four or five or six days. I come back just before next week's show. So this is Bob Pritchard on Voice America Business Network, and I hope that you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.